Who can stop the Lord Almighty? We know the answer, don't we? No one. No one. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we rejoice in what you've done. We rejoice in who you are. We rejoice that you have chosen to come near to us in the person of your Son. And Father, I usually forget something as I pray. In this case, it's someone. And Lord, we lift up Elijah to you, our brother. Lord, as he right now is, is having pains uh, in his training with his knee, I pray, Father, that you would help him. pray, Lord, that uh, you would bring the healing, because, Lord, only you can. I pray, Lord, that you would help him to find the docks uh, uh, in that whole, um, that bailiwick of, of, of medics and, and texts. And, Lord, I pray that you would, you would bring across his path someone that would be able to, to diagnose correctly and treat appropriately. I pray, Father, that you would help uh, Elijah to rest in you. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen his spirit so that he might be a man among men, being able to uh, help others to understand, Lord Jesus, that you are the mighty warrior and that, Lord, that you are the one who battles for souls of men. I pray, Father, that you help Elijah to be able to know uh, who to mentor and who to be mentored by. And so I pray now, Father, that you would open up your word to us today. Lord Jesus, this is a very precious subject, a very precious topic that you are our high priest. We thank you for your work for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, Christmas time is here, right? I mean, it's not snowing, but Christmas time is here, as you know. Remember the show, A Charlie Brown Christmas? Yes. Who does not remember the opening scene? You got all this Linus and Snoopy and everybody, you know, skating around in the ice skating rink and, or in the, on the pond. And then the song begins. I'm not going to sing it, as you know. But I'll tell you the lyrics. Christmas time is here. Happiness and cheer. Fun for all that children call their favorite time of year. Snowflakes in the air. Unless you're south of the equator. <laughs> a little, you know, I'm adding that a little bit there. Carols everywhere. Olden times and ancient rhymes of love and dreams to share. Ah, that nice. Switch scenes. Charlie Brown and Linus are speaking, and um, he tells his tale of what Linus, Charlie does. He says, I think there must be something wrong with me, Linus. Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. I just don't understand Christmas, I guess. I like getting presents and sending Christmas cards and decorating trees and all that, but I'm not happy. I always end up feeling depressed. Well, Linus says, Charlie Brown, you're the only person I know that can take a wonderful season like Christmas and make it into a problem. Maybe Lucy's right. Of all the Charlie Browns in the world, you are the Charlie Browniest. (laughs) And so begins another dose of the feel-good rendition of Christmas in our culture. But there's some redeeming value of a Charlie Brown Christmas, and we know what that is, isn't it? Linus gets on stage and he quotes Luke chapter 2 where the announcement from the angel to the shepherds, you know, rejoice, be glad because the Savior is born, Christ the Lord. And I suppose if we left it like that, that we could go back to our gift giving. You know, some of us will be getting together for Christmas and we got to watch out for COVID and all that stuff right this year. 
And hopefully we will share some happy experiences and make some happy memories. And then we'll put away the nativity scenes and take down the tree and wait till next year as it continues to be burned into our cultural mindset and our memory. A Savior is born. And then we move on with our lives. But as we know, especially this year at Grace United, there's far more to Christmas than Jesus' birth. Now, during this Christmas season, we're glancing at the birth of Jesus but we're gazing upon who Jesus was before he was born and who and what he is doing right now. You ever wonder what Jesus is doing right now? Well, many of us know the answer to that. He's ruling and reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords at the right hand of the Father. And one day we know the Lord will return to earth and he will claim his rightful place on this world, in this world. Again, as king of kings, lord of lords, all nations, all kings, all governments, all authorities will bow down to him, along with every other person on the planet and every other person who's ever lived. We will all bow before him. But what else is Jesus doing right now besides ruling and reigning everything? He's faithfully occupying his role as high priest. Theologians tell us that Jesus sits in three chairs. Now, more formally described this way, he is prophet, he is priest, and he's king. As prophet, he tells divine truth. And as king, he rules and reigns again. But what is the office of the high priest all about? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, many of us are familiar with the term priest, and unfortunately what comes to mind is Pretty horrific, isn't it? You know, think of the Catholic priests who have taken many liberties with kids. You know, Jesus has some damning words to say about those folks. But the office of priests is extremely important in all things religious. They have a lot to do with God, or in the case of pagans, because there are priests in the pagan religions as well. They have to do with gods, many of them. We can think of a priest in two ways. First, a priest is like a go-between, a mediator. You know, his ministry in the Old Testament was absolutely vital, the priest was. You know, since the day of our first sin in the Garden of Eden, we were separated from God, the king of the universe, the absolutely pure, all-powerful, all-knowing God cannot be approached on our own. We cannot approach him because we are sinful. We have to have a mediator. Paul writes to Timothy, charging him to keep faithful to God, and he describes God this way. In 1 Timothy 6, 16, he says, God alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Can we comprehend a God like that? who dwells in unapproachable light? Think about this. If the light surrounding God is unapproachable, how much more unapproachable is the God within this light? We must have a go-between. We must have a mediator. And so when God revealed how he wanted things done to his people and with his people, he told Moses to develop an entire system of go-betweens. It's called the priesthood. And Aaron, Moses' brother, would head it up as the high priest. 
He will be in charge of offering the sacrifices that holy, unapproachable God would be pleased with. And one of those sacrificial observances had to do with an annual event where the high priest would do something absolutely awesome. Not awesome like, whoa, but awesome. He would take a perfect animal, specifically a goat. I put it here in the, in the notes, a lamb, but it's really a goat. I went back and checked it. Take, it, take a, a goat, kill, the blood, kill it, take its blood and go into the holiest place in the tabernacle and later on in the, in the temple and sprinkle the blood before the Ark of the Covenant seven times. Not six times, not eight times, seven times. Now, this ceremony is called Yom Kippur. Maybe you've heard of it. It's the Day of Atonement. If the observance was done right, the sins of Israel would be covered over till next Yom Kippur. And the high priest would escape with his life. See, if the high priest did something wrong when he was in the Holy of Holies, he would be struck dead on the spot and the sins of the people would not be forgiven for that year. So it was absolutely essential for the high priest to do this right. No mistakes. What if you were the high priest? Would you have a little fear and trepidation? I think I would. But keep this in mind, though, because we're going to come back to this thing in a minute. Second, think of a priest as a, quote-unquote, covenant enforcer. A covenant enforcer. See, the priest was, at least in their own eyes, God's eyes and ears, making sure that God's people were faithful to keeping the covenant that was between them and God. If they as a nation became unfaithful, then God would punish them. And if we know Israel's history, that is why God sent Babylon to overrun Israel, to overrun Judah at that point, to take them captives. For 70 years, Judah, God's people, were held captive by Babylon. And then Babylon was overrun by Medo-Persia, and, and they were also then under, Israel was under their thumb as well. And then under the reign of Cyrus, the Persian king, the Jews were then allowed to go back to their land. But in the midst of the troubles that God predicted would happen to his people in Scripture, he inspired his men also to pepper throughout their ancient writings promises of God's Messiah. The Messiah would be the true prophet, as Moses told the people in Deuteronomy 18.18. Here's what he said. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Remember we talked earlier today. Jesus says, I only speak what my Father tells me to speak. He put the Father's words in Jesus' mouth. That's Messiah. He promised that the Messiah would be king. In Psalm 2, verses 6 through 8, As for me, God says, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And then through Isaiah, God predicted the Messiah would be Israel's sin bearer and at the same time a priest a go-between interceding for his people. Here's what he says in Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession 
for the transgressors. Well, fast forward a few centuries after this, and we know the story. At the right time, Messiah was born, and he, the agent through which all came to be, the second person of the Trinity made flesh, was also the Lamb of God. Amazingly, though, he was also born a priest, a mediator between God, unapproachable, and sinful people. Paul the Apostle declares this in 1 Timothy 2.5. He says, for there is one God and there is one mediator, one and only one, between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. No other religious figure will do. Jesus only is the mediator. And we know that Christ was born as king of the Jews. We know that Christ was born as a lamb of God. But how can Christ be our mediator? He was born to be God's special high priest. So let me put some things together for us talking about this amazing office that Christ occupies forever. And I'm going to say at the outset here, something that you might think is controversial. If Christ is not the great high priest, we would not be saved. Let that sink in. But you might be thinking, wait a second. Something doesn't seem to compute. Is that in the Bible? Yes, it is. But I thought our faith in the death and resurrection of Christ is what saves us. Yes. I thought that Christ's death on the cross purchased salvation. Absolutely. And now you're saying that if Christ was not the great high priest, we cannot be saved? Exactly. So do I have your attention? I'm going to present here two lambs and two priesthoods. And then I'm going to zero in on what I mean. I mentioned earlier that there was a group of people that God put in charge of the sacrifices in the Old Testament, led by Aaron. And when the Old Testament sacrificial system was in place, there were two times when it was all important that a perfect animal, in one sense a lamb, the other was a goat, was killed. The first time was Passover. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon of Passover, the high priest would kill the lamb to remind the people that blood was spilled in order to save the firstborn in the family from the angel of death. When the angel saw the blood applied on the doorposts, he passed over the house and everybody in the family was safe. When Jesus died on the cross at three o'clock in the afternoon on Passover, the Lamb of God said, paid in full, finished. The sin debt we owe holy God was paid, satisfied. There was another observance that the high priest was in charge of, done by him alone. Again, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. As I mentioned, the high priest would take the blood, again, of a goat, go into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle the blood in front of the Ark of the Covenant, and this would cover over the sins of the people for the year. And next year, he would do it again. Next year, again, and again, and again. Why this? Why every year? Because the blood of animals could never take away sins. Now, how can this be? Because God demanded, did he not, animals be slain on behalf of people to pay for their sins. So how is it that these sacrifices could not take these sins away? 
but can only cover it. A partial short answer is that animals were cursed, just like everybody else and everything else in creation. See, sin entered the world through Adam. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through what? Through whom? One man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Ladies, you get off the hook. See, Eve was deceived, but Adam sinned deliberately. And God tells us sin gets passed on to the children through the Father. When God gave the Ten Commandments, he said this about the third commandment in Exodus 20, verse 5. He said this, You shall not bow down to them, as in the idols, or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, we know how well we learn to sin from our fathers. Anybody who has a father knows this, true? Certainly, we can see this in our kids. I sometimes call kids video recorders with instant playback. <laughs> see, they record our failures, don't they? And then at the most inconvenient times, they push play, don't they? <laughs> Reminds me of a time when a pastor visited the home of a member of his congregation, pre-COVID days, of course. And after greeting the pastor, they sat in the living room, had a nice little chat, you know, things going. And then wanting to impress the pastor, the mother said to her daughter, Janie, please bring me the book that your mother loves so well. <laughs> you know where we're going, don't you? Janie comes out with a Harlequin romance novel in her hand. <laughs> There's also a theological truth found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. Our natural bent towards sin is passed down from Adam, our first father, to the rest of us. Because of Adam's sin, not only us, but the entire creation has been affected, tainted by sin, as we read in Romans chapter 8. And so when God directed the high priest in the Old Testament to sprinkle the blood of a spotless goat onto in front of the Ark of the Covenant, it was not really spotless. It was only out external it was spotless, but not internally. Its blood was tainted, just like everything else. And that is part of the reason why its blood could never take away sin. It could only cover it. Now consider Jesus. Though he was born of a woman, he did not have Adam as his father. You knew that, right? Who was his father? God was and is his father. Remember the announcement Gabriel made to Mary, a virgin? She was betrothed to be married to Joseph, but they did not commit fornication during their time of betrothal. And by the way, why do we tend to soften sin by giving it cute names? <laughs> we call fornication sexually active, don't we? We call adultery having an affair. We call sodomy the gay lifestyle or even even more euphemistic terms like LGBTQI plus AA or whatever. The sin of self-love is called self-care, and the list goes on. Let's have the courage of prophets 
using the same labels God uses when we deal with sin. And so here's Mary asking Gabriel how she's able to bear the Messiah. She has never been with a man. This, is, this was every Jewish girl's dream, to bear the Messiah. And Gabriel said in Luke 135, he said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. Notice that Mary was not going to bear the Son of God through a sexual union with a God. That would be pagan mythology. Jesus was and is the Son of God in terms of relationship, not procreation. Remember, the second person of the Blessed Trinity always was. And now this person was to enter into humanity via a holy embryo, in the words of Michael Carr's song, Into the Mystery. And so when Jesus was born, blood untainted by sin flowed in his veins. When Jesus grew up, he never had to fight against a sinful human nature. He was sinless. But that does not mean that he was incapable of sinning. He was, in the words of the Apostle Paul, the second Adam. See, there was a time, as we remember, right? Between the time Adam was created and the fall, he was sinless, was he not? But there came a time when Adam yielded, the first Adam. Jesus, the second Adam, did not yield to sin even once. There's an ongoing debate. It's been a long, I mean, it's been an ongoing, I mean, for years and years in theological circles. Could Jesus have sinned or could he not have sinned? Theologians argue about everything. (laughs) Now, my conclusion is that Jesus could have sinned, but he never yielded, not even once. He lived a perfect life as God's lamb and therefore was qualified to hang on the cross, taking our place and bearing our sin because he didn't have any sin of his own. And then the fateful day came. Again, Christ was arrested, tried, convicted, sentenced, flogged, stripped, naked, nailed to the cross. And his blood, untainted by sin, fell to the ground. Jesus cried out, it's finished. A soldier rammed his spear in Jesus' side and blood and water gushed out. Jesus, the Lamb of God, was dead. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took Jesus down from the cross, wrapped him in strips of linen cloth and anointed him with 75 pounds of spices and laid him in Joseph's tomb. The wicked rulers, religious leaders, persuaded Pilate to secure a contingent of about eight soldiers to guard the tomb lest the cowardly disciples would come and steal the body and say that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Soldiers were dispatched round the clock to guard that tomb and to watch. But Jesus only needed that tomb for a couple days, didn't he? And when those days went by, all heaven broke loose. Angels flung the stone away and the soldiers ran away. And Jesus emerged, victor over death. 
Mary Magdalene, though, was at the tomb. She was crying. And the angels who got rid of the stone, not so that Jesus could come out, but so people can go in to see and validate the resurrection, said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. And having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and she said, Rabboni, teacher. And Jesus said to her, don't cling to me. Literally stop clinging to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. So let me type a loose point here, and then I'm going to make my point. The perfect blood of the perfect lamb was shed. All sins were paid for on the cross. But there was one more task that needed to be done. A glorious task, beyond glorious. Let me give you the heart of the matter in the words that the writer to the Hebrews said in this regard. When Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, as in a physical tabernacle, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, but as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. His work was done. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, who are being made holy. Is that you? It's me. So what was the task that Jesus accomplished which secured eternal redemption? As the high priest, with his perfect, untainted, shed blood in hand, Jesus went to the heavenly tabernacle. As high priest, Jesus went into the heavenly holy of holies. As high priest, Jesus sprinkled his own blood before the heavenly mercy seat. How many times? Seven the glorious number of completion, of perfection. The blood of Jesus did and does and will forever serve as the glorious reminder that eternal atonement has been made. And see, as vital as it was for Jesus to die, it was not yet applied in front of the mercy seat. 
just like with the earthly high priest, it was not enough to kill a lamb. It was not enough to collect the blood into a container. It was not enough to go into the Holy of Holies. The high priest, and only the high priest, could apply the blood. And only after that, the sins would be atoned for. In the case of the early high priest and Israel, the sins were covered over one time a year. But in the case of Jesus, the high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, sins were covered forever. But again, our eternal redemption was not complete until Jesus, the high priest, applied it in the heavenly holy of holies. And praise be to God, that's exactly what he did. I don't know about you, but this makes me stop and worship. He was willing to shed his own blood, take his own blood, and sprinkle it in front of the mercy seat to pay for our redemption. I'm I'm in profound gratitude of what God did through Christ at the mercy seat. The high priest after the order of Melchizedek. See, the priesthood of the order of Aaron passed away. But the one high priest after the order of Melchizedek remains forever. And Jesus' blood, untainted by sin, applied before the heavenly mercy seat, takes away our sin now and forever. So how can we apply this eternal, amazing, beyond words truth to our life? Let me give a couple of things here, a couple of points. And I also want to remind us of what God did for us on the inside of our lives through the new covenant. So what is Jesus doing right now as the heavenly high priest? Two things. First, he's interceding for us, his people, to the Father. You knew that, right? That's what Jesus is doing. We talked about that today in Romans 8. How many times did the Lord pray in the days of his ministry? How many times did the Lord tell us to pray, command us to pray, invite us to pray, almost beg us to pray, and to be more at home? What is the very foundation upon which this ministry exists? Prayer. The serious but glorious truth is that one of the main ministries, main ministries of the Lord Jesus in his ministry right now as the great high priest is his prayers. And even more gloriously, his, as it were, I'll use this word, tag-teaming of our prayers with his. I ran across a, uh, a book by a guy named J.C. Ryle. He wrote in 1862 this book called A Call to Prayer. Here's what he says. Amazing. He says, there's an advocate, an intercessor, always waiting to present the prayers of those who come to God through him. And that advocate is Jesus Christ. He mingles our prayers with the incense of his own almighty intercession. Don't you love those words? They're great. So mingled, they go up as a sweet savor before the throne of God. And poor as our prayers are in themselves, would you agree with that? They are mighty, 
Our prayers are mighty and powerful in the hand of our high priest and elder brother. We give feeble stuff. And what does the Lord do with that? The bank note without a signature at the bottom is nothing but a worthless piece of paper. Again, this is kind of dated. The stroke of a pen confers on its all of its value. The prayer of a poor child of Adam is a feeble thing in itself. But once endorsed by the hand of the Lord, it avails much. So my question is, why aren't we praying more? The the ear of the Lord Jesus is ever open to the cry of all who want mercy and grace. It is his office to help them. Their prayer is his delight. Think of this. Is this not encouragement for us to pray? Indeed, the Lord delights when we spend much time in prayer. Does he not tell us, the Apostle Paul, that we are to pray without ceasing? Always be in an attitude of prayer, no matter where we are and what we're doing. We don't have to be on our knees in our study or office or bedroom. We can be out and about doing what God has told us to do, but we are to be in an attitude of prayer. Like when we're in the presence of someone that we never get tired of hanging around with, wanting to talk with him to her about anything and everything, the Lord is ever ready to hear and to pray with and to pray for us. And let's not forget that the Holy Spirit is teaming up with this, teaming up with us, and praying for us with groanings too deep for words. Second thing the Lord is doing right now is enforcing the new covenant in our lives. I mentioned earlier that a priest's job was to enforce the covenant God made with his people. Then and now, what God wants of his people is to live out the covenant relationship we have with him. Is it not true? Indeed, the Lord enforces the new covenant in our hearts. Well, how is that? Simply put, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, his teaching, guiding, convicting, comforting work. Don't you love it when the Lord opens your mind and heart to a truth found in his word? Now, you've read it over and over again, and then all of a sudden it's as if God himself is just pointing that out to you, and your life is now changed forever. I can't tell you how many times that's happened to me. (laughs) I guess because my theology needs tweaking so much, I don't know. But what about when we sin? Tragically, as Christians, we still do, don't we? But one day we won't. This would be great when we get to the other side. But here is where the convicting work of the Spirit comes into play. Say I speak some words that I should not be speaking, some wicked words. My conscience rises up because I'm not supposed to say what I just said. Can anybody relate to this? (laughs) And what I do, and what we do, right? We rationalize, we justify these things because we're masters at doing that, aren't we? And faithfully, what does the Holy Spirit do in our lives? Begins to convict. And we shrug it off. And the Holy Spirit continues to put more and more pressure on our hearts. We continue to rationalize. And then the Holy Spirit begins to squeeze a certain spiritual muscle called maybe a spiritual trapezius muscle. It's right here. Mothers ought to know about this trapezius muscle. And I tell you, I can't tell you how many times that Kitty had squeezed the trapezius muscle of our boys as they were growing up. Squeeze that muscle hard enough, and what do people do? 
they fall to the ground, to their knees. And see, what happens is, if you do this, you have their attention, and you speak softly to them your displeasure in their ear. See, no corporal punishment's needed, and no one's the wiser. Well, that's sort of what the Holy Spirit does with us. Why? Does he like to see us writhe in pain? No. But he trains us in holiness. When you get the chance, I encourage you to read Romans chapter 12 because that is a chapter on God's disciplining us, why he does it. But the bottom line of his discipline is so that we might share his holiness. In a word, the Lord squeezes spiritual trapezius muscle to drive us to our knees so that we will repent of the sin that he's convicting us of. God's development of our personal holiness is huge to him. Huge to him. Did I say huge? Yes. Romans 12, 14 says this. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one, no one will see the Lord. Did you catch that? No one will see the Lord without holiness. Why? Precisely because God is holy. And so I want us to turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, to see something here that we need to understand. That the day that we became Christians is the day that God signed us up for personal holiness training. So what he did. So Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 6. He says this. My son, my daughter, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son, every daughter whom he receives. And by the way, the word chastise is the same word that's used to identify the very instrument of torture they used on Jesus, the flagellum. Our heavenly high priest, the Lord Jesus, enforces the new covenant written on our hearts by his spirit. His goal, his work is that we be like him. And he won't stop until he's finished. He never tires. That could either be an amen or oh me, right? So finally, though, let's close out this message by basking in the goodness of our elder brother, the Lord Jesus. You know, he is our elder brother, right? There is something that the new covenant accomplishes in our lives that really is new. And as we know, Christ by his spirit writes a new covenant on our heart. God's ways, his Torah becomes the most precious thing to us because it's God's real life teaching. And as great as the writing of the Torah is on our hearts, there's something that the Lord Jesus has taken away to make room, as it were, for the Torah. It is a cleansed conscience. Three times the writer to the Hebrews writes about a cleansed conscience. And let me give you the clearest passage about it in Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. He says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a, of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, as in the Old Testament, Old Covenant, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? the results of the new covenant. 
Do you see this? It's an amazing thing, a cleansed conscience, is it not? When we understand what our high priest has done for us by offering his own blood before the heavenly mercy seat, we realize that his blood has cleansed our conscience. Now, why is that important? How many times have we ever been in this conversation, either with ourselves or with somebody else? You know, I've sinned grievously. God's forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. Ever been there? Ever speak this? But when we say that, what are we saying? We're saying that our conscience isn't cleansed. See, what we do, we use human logic when we talk about the new covenant and we see God's dealing with our sin and we deal with the Lord through our own faulty lens of who we are. Well, so it's kind of like this. We struggle with the same sin. We go to the Lord again and again. We confess it over and over. This never happens to us, I know, but just play along with me. And eventually, though, we become afraid. We say, how many more times can I go to the Lord before he's done with me? And here's where the error creeps in. We seem to ask the Lord to sort of look into his heart to see if there's any forgiveness left for us. Because that is, in truth, what we do with one another, isn't it? See, we really have little tolerance for others who hurt us, don't we? How often do we say things like, I don't get mad, I get even. You know, forgiveness is something really, really difficult for us, isn't it? But subtly or not so suddenly, we, get, we begin to see God in that light, that he doesn't get mad, he gets even with us. But God does not work that way. Hallelujah. We approach God full of shame, full of guilt in our heart, rightly so because we've sinned. And we say to him, Lord, I confess my sin to you. Here's what I'm guilty over. And the Lord says, I know. And we ask, in a sense, Lord, can you find it in your heart to forgive me? And we expect him to look into his heart to see if there is any forgiveness left. But God does not look into his heart. Where does he look? He looks at the heavenly tabernacle. He looks at the mercy seat. He looks at the blood of his perfect son who put it there because he is a great high priest. And based on that, on that, the Lord says, I forgive you for the sake of my son. So when our heart condemns us, when we feel that our conscience is dirty, we need to once again go back to the truth that the Lord Jesus, the perfect lamb of God, sprinkled his own blood in front of the heavenly mercy seat. It is only there that we can find the cleansing of the conscience. It is only there that we can be assured that God forgives us. For God is faithful to his covenant. And the bottom line is this. God does not forgive us because he's nice. Did you know that? He doesn't forgive us because he's loving, although he is. He forgives us because he's faithful to his covenant. That's why he forgives us. 
Praise be to the Lord Jesus for his unspeakable, precious ministry as our great high priest. And that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Let's pray. Lord God, you are so good to us. And you are so faithful to us. Nope. You're so faithful to your covenant. You will never break your promise. Lord, we're humbled by that because we break promises all the time. We are sinners. We are in such need of a Savior. And Father, thank you for sending your Son to be our Savior, to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, to be the high priest who applied the blood on the heavenly mercy seat so that forever we can have our sins taken away from us. We don't have to bear them any longer. We praise you for this, Lord. And because we are forgiven, Lord, we can forgive others when they sin against us. Lord Jesus, you told us in your word how often we are to forgive others, especially brothers and sisters. Even Peter said, Lord, up to seven times. And Jesus said, and you, Lord Jesus, you said, no, are you kidding me? As many times as it takes. Because, Lord Jesus, you forgave us as many times as it takes. Help us, please, to be like you. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. Thank you that we can worship. Thank you that, that we can offer you worship that you will accept. And speaking of which, Father, I pray now as we, as we turn our attention to the giving and also to the singing, that we will do these things as an act of worship to you because you alone deserve it. In Jesus' name we pray.